Welcome to 360 Conversations. This is a podcast featuring powerful conversations with business and well-being thought leaders, experts, and founders. We will be digging deep while sharing experience, insights, and tips for busy Generation X women seeking ways to strip back, simplify, live intentionally, and create space for everyday joy. I'm your host, Tamu Thomas, founder of The 360 Brand. I'm a life coach, speaker, writer, and podcaster too. I am passionate. In fact, I believe that it is my divine assignment to help Generation X women connect with their inner leader, the leader that resides in their emotions, buried by logic and the desire to be good. Logic and being good according to someone else's standards is okay for surviving, but round here, we are in the business of thriving. I use my background in social work, life coach training, and my superpower of loving kindness to help women connect to who they really are so they can expand into themselves fully embrace their leadership qualities and relinquish the chaos that exists within the duality of who we are and who we think we should be. My intention for this podcast is to plant seeds and create aha moments that bring you closer to your centre so that you can start to embrace your 360 degrees wholeheartedly. Hello love, welcome back to another episode of 360 Conversations. Before we begin, I invite you to place your feet firmly on the ground and feel the ground beneath your feet. I want you to take a moment to acknowledge that regardless of where you're standing, whether you're standing on pavement, concrete, laminated flooring in the first floor of your house, horrible carpet in an office building, regardless of where we're standing at any moment, we are standing on the earth. Mother Earth is forever supporting us. You are supported. So I'd like you to take another moment and just take a deep breath in and a deep exhalation. And just be present for and with yourself in this moment. We're always rushing around. We don't take enough time to notice what is around us, expanding our lungs and acknowledging that it doesn't matter what happens, Mother Earth is always here supporting us. So, on to this episode. Today, I'm joined by Nova Reed. Nova Reed is an inspirational speaker, diversity campaigner, mental activist, and anti racism educator. Nova started her professional training in mental health and disability in 2010. Prior to that, she was an actress. She has a therapeutic background with counselling skills and over nine years of extensive experience working in mental well-being. And she's worked with notable organisations, including the Mind Charity, for example. Nova is a certified NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming Life Coach, accredited by the Professional Guild of NLP. She has mindfulness qualifications and she um, is, actually, let me 
correct myself, she has experience with mindfulness and she is forever learning and deepening her knowledge so that she is abreast of, up to speed with the forever changing landscape in relation to mental health and well-being and also the impact of racism on mental health. Nova is joining me specifically to talk about her work around anti-racism education. Nova is a well-known anti-racist, um, anti-racism educator in the UK, and she works with moderate, liberal, particularly white women, um, white, white men also, that start to notice that some of their behaviour is actually racist, harmful and damaging. And she supports them to explore that, understand where it comes from and hold space for them to transform their relationship with racial difference so that they do not pass on, they do not continue the cycle of unconscious bias and sometimes overt bias to future generations. Nova also does diversity and inclusion work with organisations across the world and has very recently um, done a TEDx talk. I will make sure there is a link to that in the show notes. In this conversation, Nova and I discuss the power of calling in people in relation to racism and discrimination rather than calling out. We talk about the nuances and the ways in which racial discrimination causes harm to people of colour. And we also touch on the way that white supremacy has impacted us all, which includes black people experiencing racial discrimination and oppression from non-black people of colour. We also delve into internalised racism and the ways in which white supremacy has altered, impacted, influenced the relationship that black people, brown people, people of colour, how it impacts the relationship we have with ourselves and also the way we relate to each other. We only touch on that subject because Nova and I acknowledge that we are still processing that, but I think it is important for us to include that in conversations about racial discrimination and oppression. Throughout this conversation, Nova skillfully explains why calling in creates a environment of connection where people are able to learn as opposed to calling out which tends to be very shaming and take people underground because they don't feel safe to have these conversations or ask questions or explore their unconscious bias let's keep it all the way real their racism and Nova demonstrates how she does this without burdening herself with emotional labour and wasting time trying to counter whataboutery, which is really white centering and protecting fragile egos that are more concerned with not being deemed as a bad person so their ego can remain intact, as opposed to people that are coming wholehearted open and ready to say, do you know what? 
I don't know, let me learn, let me see where my blind spots are so that I can make changes. The real essence of Nova's work is for us all to put our big girl pants on, take responsibility and leave the world in a better situation than it is now for us and those that come after us to truly enjoy. This conversation may in parts be confronting for some, but I invite you to lean all the way in and um, be open. But before I press play on the show, I want to let you know that on the 21st of March, Saturday, the 21st of March, the day before Mother's Day, I am having a day retreat at the beautiful Scandinavian-inspired Benk and Bow in Aldgate, East London. The venue is literally four minutes walk from Aldgate Tube Station. And the day is all about unfurling into 2020. Yes, the new year is January, but emotionally, the new year is March. The days are getting brighter. The temperature is getting warmer. Mother Nature is giving us signs all over the place that sunny days are on the horizon. Please, British weather, be with us. And I think that it is a beautiful time to take stock of who you are and what you want in life and create a roadmap so that you can begin to take action on what it is you really want. And I say what it is you really want because our conditioning often puts us in an environment whereby we think we are going for what we want in life, but actually we're striving according to shoulds. So I have some powerful coaching exercises, some that are very hands-on and practical so that we are having an embodied experience and listening to the wisdom of our bodies to guide us to what it is we really want in this life. And we are going to have some beautiful yoga with Paula Hines of You Can Yoga so that we can really connect with our bodies and ask our bodies what it is they want for us. And then we are going to finish the day with some beautiful sound healing that will be done by Kate Gaskell of Between Two Breaths. Because when we do this kind of work, when we are tapping into our subconscious desires, we need to not just operate on a cognitive cerebral level, we need to be able to communicate with our organs, our cells, our fascia, our connective tissue, because the truth of who we are and what we want in this life is stored in our emotions and our emotions live in our body. Our limitations live in our conscious mind. And this day is set to take you beyond that. I've got about five spaces left. There are links in the show notes. If you would like to come, I will be there to welcome you with open arms. Now to today's episode. So today I am joined by Nova Reed, who is the best ever anti-racism educator, do you call yourself an activist? I don't, but I, I will own it. I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> activist. Scared. I used to be scared of it, but I own it now. Okay, right. So rewind and come again. Today I am joined by Nova Reed, who is the best 
anti-racism educator and activist. She is a speaker. She is a writer. She runs courses for people that are serious about not just not being racist, but actually being anti-racist. She does a whole load of work in these streets. And we're going to have a conversation about all of that. But firstly, Nova, welcome to 360 Conversations. Thank you so much for having me, wonderful human. I'm so happy to have you back here. And I'm going to a disclaimer. This is my second conversation with Nova. (sighs) (laughs) My first conversation with Nova, I was really stuck in my feelings, which... um, Nova probably doesn't realise she helped me to dissect and um, explore. So I feel like I didn't do Nova justice in that conversation. And I feel like at that time, I was so in my feelings. But it might not be the truth. This could well be a story that I'm telling myself. But I just don't think that I created a um, podcast episode that was going to be of service. And I'm really mindful about not cluttering up the airwaves just for the sake of cluttering up the airwaves. Like, I, this is a sacred space. You give me your time. I want to honour that time. Um, so this isn't like self-deprecating or whatever the word is. Um, it is what it is. That was then. This is now. And we're here, we're back. We are. <laughs> so, um, Nova, I'm going to uh, do a little bit of a, a plot twist. Rather than just saying, please, could you tell us who you are and what you do? I would like you to tell us, if someone was to talk about you and your work, how would you want them to describe it? Oh, good twist. Mm. Um well, someone did it very recently and it gave mm-hmm. me all the goosebumps. They described me as a force to be reckoned with, mm-hmm. an inspiring speaker, and somebody who's not just helping people be the change, is also role modelling it. So I help people be the change they want to see in the world through anti-racism work. And that is through writing, through speaking at events, through training, through consultancy, and I guess to an extent through coaching. So, yeah. Let me just take the, I guess, out. Through coaching. <laughs> she is doing some powerful, powerful coaching because I know somebody that you worked with and um, she talked about how transformative working with you was for her. Her coaching experience of you was for her. And not only did it help her to see the blind spots Um, And for her to actually see that there was lots of her behavior that was racist and for her to own that, Mm. it also, she said, changed the way that she views the world full stop, which I think is really, really powerful. Really, really powerful. Thank you. I will own that. Thank you. Good. Come on. (laughs) So let's dig in. What led you to your work and just another disclaimer I'm forever like Nova why do you do this why do you do this Nova why so so what led you to this work um the short answer I was sick and tired of being at the effect of racism and lack of progress to better race equity um the long version is I have quite an eclectic background in terms of my career but the, the catalyst, I guess, was when I got engaged to be married in 20, uh, 2011. And I was searching for wedding inspiration as a modern British woman who is also black. And I found nothing. There was just this 
profound silence for stylish chic women couples who had melanin it was I flicked through three magazines they invariably had around 200 pages and there was not one single image of a person of color let alone a black person and I thought this is ridiculous love is such a universal thing and I and I can't see myself represented and I would go to wedding shows and I'd be given goodie bags with tanning products in I would go to makeup counters and I'd be told sorry we can't do your makeup I would um, be given brochures that just had image after image of a white size eight blonde woman and I was like wow we're really not valued and I'd had these subliminal messages throughout my life Mm -hmm. as a young girl I worked in I worked as an actress for a number of years and it was the same thing makeup artists couldn't do black makeup there wasn't products there were no new tights so this wasn't the first time this was happening but this was the time when it was happening when I had had enough and Mm -hmm. so I started blogging about it and then that turned into businesses coming to me and asking to support my blog or sponsor me or tap into my audience and then that turned into diversity consultancy and then that morphed into anti-racism. Can we just take a moment please? (laughs) So you started your blog and your stuff around I guess bringing shedding light to the fact that black and brown people get married black and brown people are in love and need to be served in this way we are part of the united kingdom um Mm. don't leave us out that led you to blogging which led you to people wanting to um tap into your audience pay you to be have a presence on your blog Mm -hmm. consultant uh, a diversity training consultancy Mm -hmm. And you didn't get, did, let me not put words into your mouth. When you started your blogging, Mm -hmm. was it purely because you wanted to fill a gap in the market? It was two things. I just wanted to rant. I was so upset. I just wanted to get everything that was in me out. Mm -hmm. And it also tapped me back into my creativity again. So I just really enjoyed writing. It wasn't for any other purpose than to just share my experience. And, um, hopefully inspire other people on the way who were having a similar experience and I didn't think anyone would read it and then when I went from sort of two followers to a hundred to a thousand and then ten thousand plus I was like oh my god (laughs) and that's a lot back in the day it was it's when it's when people used to comment on blogs so I then started rethinking right okay there is a there is a need there is a gap I knew there was a need but there is a you know, there is an opportunity to monetize this now. How do I do this properly? And so I spent some time rebranding and turning Mm -hmm. it into a business. And um, yeah, so it was never the, it was never the, it was accidental if that Mm -hmm, makes sense. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the more gravitas I got from it, the more I was like, wow, okay, there's something here and I'm serving such a need. Yeah. 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 Um, And where I'm sitting now, I am looking at Nova's wall that has got like black loving couples. Well, it's it's you and your husband. It's Um, it's my my family. Your family. So I'm seeing an array of the variety of black love from familial love, romantic love. We're out here. We're loving. We're thriving. Come on. Come on. To me, it made no business sense. I was like, at the end of the day, I am motivated by this because 
I feel the impact of not being included as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. But there was also a business side to it that made no sense to me, that businesses are 35% more likely to be outperformed and outsold if they are not intentionally diverse and inclusive. inclusive yeah. So I was like, do you people not want to make money at the very yeah. least? Because we also, as um, let me be specific, black African black Afro-Caribbean will spend double the price of a quintessentially white British couple. I'm like, what yeah. is wrong with these people? So, yeah. yeah, you're missing so, yeah. some money here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I read that, I was astounded by the impact being inclusive has to your bottom line. Mm. It's huge. 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 So um, in your anti-racism work, uh, you know, so... Uh, we are both, Nova and I are both Brené Brown fans. Yes. And uh, in your work, you talk about calling in rather than calling out. Um, and as you talk about that, I just keep hearing Brené Brown stuff around connection over acceptance and fitting in. So please, could you explain what the difference between calling out and calling in is? Okay. So what I didn't mention in the beginning is that I used to work in mental health for just under 10 years. And that was while my my wedding business was ticking along underneath. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my training to prepare me to work in that role. So I was dealing with very vulnerable um, people from sort of clinical anxiety right through to borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia so I had to have a vast range of skills to be able Mm -hmm. to adequately serve people coming to me or my service and a lot of that training was about how dangerous shame is how dangerous shaming people is um so that's always been in 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 the root of how I work Mm -hmm. we can hold people accountable we can expect better from one another. We can have difficult conversations with one another without shaming. Because mm-hmm. when we shame, I mean, we've all been shamed. It doesn't feel great. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a state for transformation. It doesn't elicit change. And it will either provoke anger. It will either make the person want to disengage. Or it makes the person go inward and start sort of you know, p- potentially projecting self-hate inwards. And and none of those are grounds for transformation. They might give like an immediate, you might get an immediate response, but it's not, it's not sustainable. So I am all about not shaming because it, it just doesn't work. You have mm. the complete and utter opposite effect. So I'm all about calling in and that doesn't mean not holding people account- accountable. It's just separating the person from their behavior. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's making me think when you talked about shame, um, basically driving things underground, Mm. it makes me think about my experience. And I think it's a common experience of being a black person or person of colour in uh, London, uh, in the UK, growing up in the 90s. There was a lot of overt shaming in relation to racism because the school of racism that uh, was being banded about was National Front, mm. that kind of thing. Mm. So that that was disgusting. That was shame. We're not like that. Mm. And then there was this huge drive for multiculturalism. 
But multicultural, so, so the shame of that led to multiculturalism. So people had things going on underneath. So I had a very uh, good friend of mine. Um, he's a white British man now, boy at the time. He was friends with another friend of ours, black British guy. I never had any reason, desire to go and knock for our white friend, but our male friend, well, he wouldn't knock. They would agree a time because we didn't have mobile phones and wait at the end of the road because my friend's father would not tolerate him having a black or brown friend knocking at the door. He didn't want them at the doorstep. So the multiculturalism always had the kind of racism underneath. Yeah. Because the multicultural, it wasn't multiculturalism, it was assimilation yes. called multiculturalism. And it's, it's really, really interesting, and I'm going to stick a pin in this because I want to come to this a little bit later. Okay. It's really interesting for me because as black and brown people, I remember very clearly, like I'm, I'm 42 years old, and I know that millennials and gen, whatever comes after them, Z, whatever they're called, have got a very different experience or quite a different experience. I remember there were lots of black people I knew, particularly middle-class black people that were really in the assimilation story and would also perpetuate racist uh, myths, ideals, because they were trying so hard to, or they had been conditioned. You know, white supremacy didn't just work on white people. It works on us as well. We we have our own internalised racism we have to Yeah. So there were all sorts of things, like there was a girl that I hung around with at school, and this is another, gosh, I didn't even think about this before, this is another layer of complexity. Because white supremacy has worked on us all, I believe the world is framed by, underpinned by white supremacy. Um, And uh, because European is held as the global standard for excellence, being the best or whatever. So I had... Um, an Asian friend whose parents didn't like, I will say this now very confidently, mm-hmm. they didn't like black people. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. felt that there was a racial hierarchy. Yes. They were above black people and black people were below everybody else. Yes. However, there was a difference for me because I'm African and they mm-hmm. believed that although Africans are, you know, well, we're the, original black Mm -hmm. although we are black we like education parent Mm -hmm. like it was all those stereotypes education your parents are strict etc etc so there were so many levels and layers Mm -hmm. to navigate and um, as an adult now I'm just like I wish I had a better I'm going to stick a pin. I know that's a cliffhanger. I'm going to stick a pin. <laughs> I've got a question to come back to um, yeah. about that. Um, so I'm just going to write something down for me to remember to come back to. Okay. Um, sorry, this is like um, an episode of Coronation Street, but <laughs> we will be back. Okay, so you talked about calling in. I loved what you said. Shame is no state for transformation. So calling in separates the person from the behavior and Mm -hmm. opens them up to be able to make change because Mm -hmm. I guess they're not identifying themselves with the label or the behavior. So what about these sorts of things? I'm not racist. I'm a nice person. I try to be kind to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about a friend of mine 
has uh, she that they're a black family of Jamaican origin, like Jamaican parents, black British family, Jamaican parents. She's friends with a lady who's white British, and uh, this lady liberal, moderate, would have conversations about things going on in the news, thought that Black Black Lives Matter is wonderful, really exasperated with police brutality in America. Mm -hmm. My friend's son saw her in the evening and it was dark and he approached her to say hi. Mm -hmm. She didn't recognize him and he said she clutched her bag. Yep. My friend has never addressed this with the woman because she just didn't know how to and thought that the levels of discomfort was going to be like way too yeah. high. Um, and she, like the friendship wasn't that much, that valuable for her to, you know, weather that storm. So what do you say to this? Because this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. And it's what I, it's what my... It's what my anti-racism work is is about. I am not doing anti-racism education to engage somebody who is in National Action or Britain's First or hanging around in the KKK. That's not who my work is for, right? Mm -hmm. I'm doing the work for the kind-hearted, well-meaning liberals who don't think they are contributing or already know that they are contributing, but just don't know how to, to undo it. So I talk a lot about hidden racism. I mm -hmm. talk a lot about everyday racism, microaggressions, those kind of language, the everyday discrimination that contributes to race inequity that still exists mm -hmm. in the fact that black men are 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police than white men in the fact that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women as a result of medical rate, me, um, medicine being founded on medical racism. I probably don't have time to go into that today, but Google the Embrace report. Um, the fact that um, children as young as three who are black and brown are experiencing racism in the playground and they are three years old. Children are learning our behaviour from us. The fact that um, in 2015, British taxpayers, so you and I, were still paying Nova. off slavery reparations. So that means compensation that was given to slave-owning families around the abolishment of slavery in the UK. We only just paid that off, that debt off, in 2015. So for everyone who says, oh, it was a long time ago, this is how it's still complicit now. And that absolutely contributes to why we have an ethnicity pay gap now, to why there are many roles that have, for the roles that have been measured where a, a white man or a white woman and a black person are not being paid the same for the same job. A black person has been paid less. A black or brown person has been paid less. All of that, you know, I know that already, but still when I hear it, it makes my heart like hurt and may I point out the thing that you quoted about the reparations being paid off in 2015 again this um lack of understanding and lack of appreciation for what for the meaning behind things mm -hmm. that became public like widely wide yes. public knowledge because somebody from HMRC tweeted that thinking it was a good thing 
yeah. saying to the British public that we were so great, we helped to abolish um, slavery, and we just finished paying for it in 2015 without consciously registering that that means that, number one, slave-owning families were paid so much money in reparations, compensation, that we only just finished paying it off in 2015 when slavery was abolished in, what, 1898 or something like that? Uh, I want to say 1865. It's uh, yeah, 1865. Yeah. But there were still people um, enslaved until 1868. So it took that long to pay off the debt. Furthermore, black people have been in England for donkeys, time immemorial. But let's think about Windrush. So people came <laughs> over an Empire Windrush. What was that? 1948 onwards. 1948 onwards have been steadily paying taxes and contributing to the system coming to the mother country because many of the uh, people that came were from countries that were still British colonies yes so not only were you in a colony you were paying back the tax that got you to be in that colony in the first place you haven't benefited at all and then we have the aristocracy running around um talking about immigration problems and we want our country back and all of this and that and the other, when actually people like me, whose families were shattered by the impact of the transatlantic slave trade, have been paying taxes that you are enjoying your intergenerational wealth from. Absolutely. I remember I was delivering a uh, workshop to an organisation last year and this needed to happen. It was one of the most hostile, stressful and violent spaces I have ever been in as a black woman. And they had engaged me in work because they had come under, I think they were ticking a box. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't adequately screen them as not, not being in the right space to do this work or not being the right client for the type of work that I do. So they were doing it to tick a box rather than to actually make some changes so that they avoid you know looking bad in the press or whatever it might be and somebody actually asked me that in the middle of uh my anti-racism class my anti-racism workshop they said they were just completely exasperated by what I was talking about they were irritated by it and they said why haven't black people gotten over slavery yet and when you just bring it back to basic economics look at where the reparations went Look at whether this was intentionally addressed or not, because they compared it to uh, the Jewish community in the Holocaust. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, one, that was over four years. And slavery, as we know it, in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, was 400 plus. So I think that's going to take a little bit of time to undo. And Mm -hmm. obviously there was an infrastructure, legally, um, economy, socially, Science, religion. Science, religion, the whole infrastructure, a whole holistic frame that enabled white supremacy to continue for 400 plus years. And unless we, and again, one of the things around um, the, the nuances around what he was asking me around why, why, I mean, if you ask anyone in the Jewish community, I'm sure their answer wouldn't be that they'd gotten over it. It's trauma, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but his reasoning was that, well, you know, they seem to be doing all right in society and, and, and they, they must have gotten over it. And I said, well, you could look at it in terms of, um, Germany has, over the last 60 years, um, p- 
paid reparations to surviving and tried to families tried to atone I'm not saying they're perfect clearly mm. they're not mm. but they've acknowledged they educate it's in their system people know where they came from what on earth have we done here in Britain to atone nothing no and there, there was something I love the fact that you use the term racial equity instead of equality um, because I am definitely about equity that is the precursor to equality mm-hmm. and there was something that I was reading I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to find the study there was a study this is American based but it's for contrast um, it was saying something like in order for in general black people to be in the same economic position in general as white people white people would have no social and economic position as white people Black people, I mean, white people in general, would need to remain stationary economically and socially for 200 years for black people to be equal to them. Mm-hmm. So racial equality, and, and I've said it in like in real simple terms, if I walked down to my local parade of shops and gave everybody £100, everybody wouldn't have £100. So you can't give everybody a hundred pounds thinking that that's going to be equal. There mm-hmm. are some people that will have minus 900 pounds yes. instead of minus a thousand pounds in their overdraft that they had before. There are some people that will have 10,000 and 100 pounds. There are what some people that will now have 100 pounds. There are some people that would now have zero pounds. So Equality is a ruse because that says that if we treat everybody the same now, it will make up for the centuries worth of um, oppression, brutality and all the rest of it. It, it would it would cancel it all out. And it doesn't work like that. Mm. If you broke your leg in, 20, uh, in, in 2017, it might be healed in 2020, but you st- it's still got a break. You're still going to do an x-ray and there's still going to be a break in that x-ray. I like to use, there's a really great picture I use in my training where they're at, there's a, a, there's a group of people. I think there's three or four people mm-hmm. and they're all, the trying, they're all trying to watch a, I can't remember what it is, but just say it's a football game and there is a physical barrier. So just say that there is a wall. And so there is a, a man who is able-bodied and he's standing and he's very tall, so he can see everything. There is um, a little child who is really small, also able-bodied, can't see a thing because they can't see over the ledge. And there is also a wheelchair user and who also can't see. So equity is about providing fairness. Mm-hmm. So a level playing field. A level playing field. So, you know, it's never going to be equal because they don't, they're not all coming from the same places. And yeah. for them, it's, you know, it's raising the platform so that they can see over the ledge. So mm-hmm. it's about fairness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, reparations would, for some, be seen as a start towards working towards that fairness. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I'm, I need to I need to uh, correct something factually, otherwise it's going to bug the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, 1865 is when slavery was abolished in the US, and okay. 1833 is when the Slavery Act came into play 
in the UK. So um, it was going to bug me otherwise. (laughs) Thank you very much. Right. So, okay. So uh, we were talking about your work with people that are moderate, liberal thinking, that um, want to, uh, are having, you know, wanting to make changes. So I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther King. Uh, And when I found this quote, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I, I relate to what Martin Luther King is saying. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's potentially going to trigger, um, but I would say lean in and try to explore where that is coming from, which wound that is activating rather than um, shut down or numb by mm-hmm. flipping over to doing something else. So Martin Luther King said, First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in their stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counsellor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Yes, And that is why my husband and also quite a number of black people I know will say they would much prefer to deal with an overt act of racism once or every now and then than this constant everyday subtle undertone Mm -hmm. of racism and Mm -hmm. and nothing changing. Mm -hmm. And that quote always evokes something in me because on the one hand it's deeply sad and frustrating that it feels like not an awful lot has changed because I wouldn't be coming on your podcast in 2020 talking about I wouldn't be an anti-racism educator if things had changed mm-hmm. um, to an extent where we started seeing changes in outcome because mm-hmm. we're not we're seeing patterns of behavior being repeated and they're taking on different formats because and I'm afraid to say it but it's the painful truth so many well-meaning kind-hearted white liberals are not taking action to be actively anti-racist because they don't think they're part of the problem so gosh I don't even know where to begin with that but not taking action okay so I just want to say hear very clearly that not taking action is actually taking action yeah and if you don't challenge a bully then the bully continues to reign and I cannot think of anything in history that changed for the better without a fight I can't think of anything. Slavery didn't wasn't abolished because black people continuously sang, we shall not be moved or please could you help us? It was lots of acts of rebellion and um, 
there was like the Quaker movement and all sorts of people that were actually really ramping up what they were doing. Uh, the civil rights movement in America became the civil rights movement as we know it because people started to fight back. I remember um, in Labrook Grove, the Notting Hill Carnival, for example, was born out of the race riots that happened in London at that time. Mm. Um, even the suffragettes, they weren't just walking around nicely in corsets. They were, they were fighting. They were, they were doing um, all sorts I cannot think of, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Holoc the Holocaust and the Jewish community and Holocaust survivors. That ended because of war. So there's nothing that has gone away by people saying things in a tone that feels soft and gentle or using language that demonstrated they were really well educated or excusing things and turning the other cheek and like, there's there's nothing in this even if you think about how humanity started it was a big bang <laughs> no so I just think we need to um we need to act and I'm not suggesting that everyone goes out there and, and starts like when I, you know, I know why you're using the word fight, but I don't mean that people need to go out and be violent. And I don't, and, yes. I don't, I definitely I not, just want to clarify that. internal, yeah. absolutely, thank you for picking that up it's and clarifying the, that. It's, it's the fire in the belly, it's actually my, my voice, my stance, I have influence in my community, in my mm -hmm. circles, mm -hmm. and whether that's, you know, and you know, that starts with you, your own yeah. self-interrogation, and then the more you go on this journey, you, you just, it's like seeing the world with new glasses on and then you start that starts impacting how you parent that yeah. starts impacting the conversations you have with family yeah. who is who you, who you might be letting casual racism pass by that starts having a knock-on effect in the workplace in policy yeah. in healthcare. Yeah. so it there there is a ripple effect absolutely no one's, no one's saying you need to become um the next martin luther king jr or angela davis but there needs to be action and consistent and that, that was, action. Yeah, yeah that, that was the point I was trying to make more so than inciting uh, <laughs> right. violence. Um, <laughs> it was more about the action. Uh, you know, life is made by a series of actions. So actions don't have to mean um, standing on the front line. Mm. There are some really wonderful people doing great work and whether they think it's anti-racism work or not, I don't know, but there are lots of people I know, lots of, um, you know, would be considered to be liberal or moderate white women who are signposting people that look like them, opening up conversations, having a dialogue yes. and actually saying, no, ex ex stand still with me and explore this. Don't gloss past. Don't want somebody else to emotionally labor for you. Stand with me. Let, let's do this. And um, it's having a really big impact whereby I don't do it often, but I am on occasion able to have discussions with people who feel bold enough to ask a question yeah. without getting too concerned about whether or not them asking this question means they're racist. Yes, yes, yeah. And that to me is what it's all about. It's like, I, I mean, I, I practice um, calling in and not calling out and, and cultivate an environment where, you know, that's not ego driven. So you can ask these questions. I mean, if it's different, if I'm in an education session, it's slightly yeah. different, but if it's just on my social media, 
um, or just people asking me general questions, of course you can ask those questions, but you also need to be prepared that if you're asking a black or brown person about something that affects them, like racism, and they choose not to tell you or give you a response or um, may get angry, they are entitled to that as well because it is not our job to educate. I'm an educator, so there's a caveat with me. But Mm -hmm. it's like absolutely ask these questions but also be prepared that you're not entitled to a response from a black or brown person. And don't make that person wrong because of your sense of entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about thinking about the effects, let's talk about racism and mental health because it's not just yeah. unpleasant. It actually is something that damages um, our mental health because mm-hmm. it reduces our resilience and all of that. You, right. So Nova is the real deal. And I guess maybe this, is, I didn't think about this before, but maybe this is one of the reasons that I really admire the work you do because you're a lifelong, I, I love I love learning and I love people that love learning and you have done and you continue to do extensive research. We're just finding out, we're, we're new to actually yes. having nuanced, meaningful discussions about racism. Yes. Um, and that there's so much new information about the impact of racism mm-hmm. um, that really um, quantifies the experience of black and brown people and gives us language to yes. articulate. Because we didn't, when somebody would say, oh, you've got a chip on your shoulder in the early 90s and, well, throughout the 90s, it was really difficult to go somewhere with that because we mm-hmm. didn't have terminology like, or I wasn't aware of terminology like microaggressions and stuff mm-hmm. and back then. Please, could you share some of the ways uh, you're aware of that racism impacts mental health? Yeah, so the, the research is still, um, I mean, there, there is an argument here because uh, the term microaggressions, which is a form of everyday discrimination that was first um, found to be the, the differences between um, black people were treated versus non-black people. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of extended to con- include people in other minority identities so lgbtq disability etc but in its original inception it was around the disparities discrimination that black people african-american people experienced in 1970 Mm -hmm. so that was founded then in the height of the civil rights movement why are we only just seeing research being done about the links between anyway anyway that's a conversation for another day but we're only just starting to see research being done um around the impact of everyday racism and on, on the brain, on mental health. And so it, it does link into, there are so many stats, I don't have them all in front of me, but there are, so I don't have the numbers in front of me, mm-hmm. but black people are more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act um, than white people. Um, black women are more susceptible to depression or anxiety than their counterparts mm-hmm. um and, and I guess specifically there has been some work around neuroscience that shows people who have regular exposure to racial stress so everyday racism um microaggressions these little subtle undertones can cause more harm than overt acts of hate and it's showing in the brain people who have regular exposure to racial stress shows on the brain the same brain pattern that they've seen on war veterans who've served in war experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder so i think what many people underestimate 
so ferociously is that racism is a form of trauma. Mm-hmm. Whether that is somebody shouting at you and calling the N-word, all these everyday ways that you're not included, these everyday ways you're made to feel like you don't belong, people putting their hands in your hair and asking if they can touch it, that kind of violation. Um, oh, you don't sound black, these kinds of things. And what makes them so dangerous is, one, you don't expect them, so they come out of nowhere. And two, some black and brown people experience these several times a day, every single day. Nova, look very recently, I don't know which football team it was, where one of the black players had to literally fight his way through to leave the pitch because the team was... Uh, racially abusing him he had enough and was walking mm. off the pitch his um colleagues his players were trying to stop him from leaving the pitch both black brown whites was trying to stop him from leaving the pitch and their I don't know what was being said but the facial expressions disappointment anger I'm sure there was some shaming going on and um rise above it come on it's for the team I can imagine those sorts of things were going on where I'm like if one of your you're a team if one of your team is being humiliated taunted traumatized by their experience all walk off why, why should people still continue to be entertained by the game of football when they're behaving in such abhorrent ma- uh, manner? And it seemed like there were huge swathes of people that were racially abusing mm. this player. Yet mm. the game was prioritised over the health and well-being of one of the players. Lord knows how many times he's experienced that and thought, right, that's it. It's enough. I'm, well, I'm, I'm it. out of here. That's it. And I think that's what is underestimated. If, 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 if we are having such a strong response to, I mean, racist chanting isn't a microaggression, that's no, it's not a yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But if we're having such a strong response to a microaggression, or even that example, that's, not, that's historical. That's not happening once. That, we're not responding in that way because that's happened once or twice or five times. Mm. That is continuous trauma. And I think that's the problem. That's why it's continued in society because we're not coming together collectively to intentionally address racism. Yeah. I've yeah. been saying that for ages with the footballers. Stop playing the game. When, when that happens, all walk off collectively. Have that as part of a policy where you're all um, fully supportive of that because then what happens if everyone's not fully supportive of that, that black or brown player then gets demonised. Yeah. Um, and, and bullied and ganged up upon. So, yeah, It exacerbates the, the whole... There is an impact. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you do this work, you experience this, and although you screen your um, the people that you work with, and generally your community are people that are curious and want to learn, mm-hmm. you do get the occasional person that strolls up to you on social media and can be quite um, racist to be quite frank yes what are some of the ways we can ameliorate and I'm not saying it to say that it is our job to um, make up for what um, our experiences of racism but what are the things that are you we can do personally what are the things that you do to kind of ameliorate the negative impact 
of racist abuse? Um, I have a really strong support network. So my husband's my rock and he will see if I'm struggling to uh, find my own way to separate, he will, mm-hmm. he will help me with that. I've also got a, a stronger support network within my family. Um, and I have a network of work colleagues and other anti-racist educators. And we check in with each other when you're just completely and utterly exasperated. Um, I have regular social media breaks. I have, um, because I worked in mental health for so long and because of a lot of our training was about protecting ourselves, our mm-hmm. own well-being, because you're going to be hearing things that might conjure something strong up in yourself or might really upset you or might even trigger a trauma in you. Mm-hmm. You've got to be so self-aware when you work in that space. And we used to have something called clinical supervision every two weeks where you would ultimately be talking with a therapist so Mm -hmm. therapy has always been in my life I've had Mm -hmm. personal therapy as well Mm -hmm. so I still have a network of therapists who are my friends who Mm -hmm. I can sense check in with Mm -hmm. I also have lots of tools about how to up my self-care and maintain my self-care over a period of time so Mm -hmm. I also try and have I also try to work four days a week Mm -hmm. so that one day a week I am not doing this I'm not doing this. I'm reading, yeah. I'm pottering, I'm yeah. doing, maybe I'm writing or I'm doing something that's not where I'm front facing. Yeah. Um, so regular breaks, upping my self-care, strong support network. Um, I also, when I can, when I am able to financially, will have a spa day or um, I'll sing when I can. Oh, I um, love that. We so can just sing anytime. Sing anytime. Dancing yeah. is a, like music is an instant energy and mm-hmm. state changer for me. So music mm-hmm. is quite powerful for that. Um, and just making sure that I'm boundaried. Like people will. One of the things that I am. Um, one of the things that makes people come to me, I guess, is I'm quite accessible or I, or I appear to be very accessible, but I'm still very boundary. So if somebody's coming to my DMs at 11 p.m., then I'm not replying to that message yeah. until I'm ready the yeah. next day or two days after. So I don't feel like I need to respond to things straight away. Yeah. And if something's taking me outside of what I feel comfortable um, doing, I will like... I will send them links to my work. This is how you can get access to me. This is my details to pick my brain. Yeah. Here's my online anti-racism course. Yeah. Um, these are my contact hours. So yeah, yeah just being boundaried with my contact yeah. hours. Yeah. Um, and I I'm started just recently doing no phone Sundays. Okay. <laughs> I like that idea. I like so that idea. Those are little ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just remembered I stuck a pin in something and said I was coming back, but um, did. I, I stuck a pin. Um, it was about a uh, uh, new language that we had. And um, I was talking about the experience of the way that black and brown people um, internalize white supremacy um, and use that or don't realize they're using that to create separation and division. Um, So I was talking about the fact that um, in school, um, a Southeast Asian friend of mine, her father kind of, it was like, well, you're all right because you're, uh, you're African, your parents are strict. 
they're really into education. So all of these um, kind of like um, respectability politics things were ticked. Yeah. Therefore, I was one of the all right ones. Um, and to be quite honest, I can't remember where I was headed when I stuck a pin in that. But what it has made me think about is that your work is really important because that whole notion of, well, you're all right, that is still the same thing. It's, that yeah, it's is a form still, of racism. Yeah. Uh, and we do it, you know, as I, because I'm going on my own healing experience at the moment. So I've done a lot of uh self-interrogation I've done a lot of work I had to to work in therapy for 10 years Mm -hmm. um around self-awareness and who I am my identity but there's always so much more beneath the surface so I'm doing a lot of spiritual healing work around transgenerational trauma on myself at the moment and so I'm having some beautiful insights and um some of it is deeply painful and some of it is liberating. It's a, and I think when I'm slightly further along on that journey, I will start um, talking more mm-hmm. about what we can do as black and brown people to facilitate our own healing yeah. because there is so much internalised racism. There is so much anti-blackness. There is so much race hate that goes on between other ethnic minorities and I'm mm-hmm. using the word race hate and not racism specifically because they're it's not different. the same thing yeah because the the grandparent of all of that shit going on is white supremacy yeah um colorism Indian yeah. caste system so much um yeah. so I will be um offering something that that helps us navigate this and recognize what it looks like when we do yeah. it to each other yeah um and also to hold compassion for ourselves mm-hmm. and each other because mm-hmm. we are all products of similar environments and similar traumas <sighs> absolutely yeah. i i have i have this conversation on a regular basis and it's even things like so prior to doing this i had a website online platform whatever you want to call it um space uh with my friend leah motherhood reconstructed which was a um one of the first and i think we were before our time um people black people even didn't understand why we created a space that was about black british motherhood um and specifically about black british motherhood because our experience there are differences and nuanced differences um between us and our um sisters over in america and um one of the um things that was quite interesting for us is that there was kind of like this push and pull so there would be people that would um be really interested in what we were doing like black people but couldn't understand why we were doing it and thought and would say things like you would be so much more successful if it was for everybody but with a leaning towards black motherhood yeah black um and and uh minority ethnic groups in the UK yes and and there was I was surprised by the resistance I was met with by some black not necessarily mothers women mm. because it feels like they were still very much caught up in that assimilation story um, as opposed to thinking like sometimes because we are 
just starting to really deeply navigate this space, there are some times that we need to be around people that share a common experience. So we're not having to constantly go to the beginning and explain yes. and try to bring people up to speed because that in itself is labour and labour. Labour. <clears throat> it's hurtful and it's damaging because yes. there's always a tinge of having to prove convinced yeah yeah so it's interesting I had similar um advice in my early days when I started my my wedding business new bride and I had exactly the same advice and it was coming from older black women yeah um and of course at that I was in my ooh, I was 30 then I'm giving away my age now <laughs> so just turned just you're just on the cusp of 30s 29 30 so I'd never run my own business I'd done I'd worked as an actress and I'd done bits and pieces before but that wasn't really running your own business not in the way that I do now so I was very impressionable was like hanging off every word and of course I wanted it to I wanted it to be a success um and I had exactly the same um, you will do better if you don't center blackness and um only in the I'd say the past three years have I realized that was the worst business advice I could get we're only just now and and I, I will really really just take a moment to honor and thank our millennial sisters because they have done such huge big powerful work that has actually demonstrated not just the need but also the uh, viability on the, yes. in a business sense of having things that are specifically catered towards and centering black people and and what I have seen off the back of that is people of other minority in the UK backgrounds yes actually taking up space saying we're here mm -hmm. this is how I've been impacted it's mm -hmm. not just black people that are impacted in this way we southeast Asian people are impacted in this way um etc I think it's almost like no it's not almost like let me be bold black women again have paved the way for other people to be able to say this isn't on this isn't yes. fair this isn't right this needs to be addressed yes yeah yeah and it's, um, again, that's to me, that's the lesson in equity. It's not <clears> saying that, you know, there are some things that just aren't for us. There are some things that need to be specific to men. Yeah. There are some things yeah. that need to be specific to trans men. There mm -hmm. are some things that need to be specific to women. There are some things that need to be specific to trans women because our experiences are not the same. Yes, there will always be things that intersect and are universal, yeah. Yeah. but we can do things that speak to those nuances and those niches yep. to help improve equity. And that's the point. So when you get the whataboutism from groups of white people saying, well, why isn't there a white pride, a straight pride month and all this, you're part of the majority group. There isn't an inequity there. Yeah. That's the difference. That's yep. the nuanced difference. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and oh gosh, Nova, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I say she's the best because that is really, really important. Even when we have a conversation about privilege, 
privilege is not a bad thing. No one is saying that you're a bad person because you've got privilege. I have privilege. I Mm -hmm. acknowledge my privilege. It's when you don't acknowledge your privilege and you live a life whereby you believe that everybody um, is the same and should, or you or you project this idea that we're all the same. Therefore, you can't tell me that because I'm white, I'm middle class, and um, I'm able-bodied, that I'm better off than you, who is black, middle class, and able-bodied, simply because I'm white. Because the fact is, the statistics say, the research say, the academia, it all says it very clearly. And that aside, we can see it. <laughs> well it, it, we can see it we live it it's our experience but for me now there's data there so I just go when, I, when I'm getting that I just go here's the data read it and if they want to come back and ignore the data then I know they're not open to yeah. expanding their thinking yeah. in that moment and it's not to say that they're not open to it at all it's just in that moment they're not able shut to down hear. they're they just shut down mm-hmm. but it's you know the original term white privilege has been slightly main, made mainstream but the original inception was called white skin privilege yeah. and that was as a result of a 40 year analysis by a harvard academic called theodore w allen in the 60s that began to monitor research and um see data over and over again that they were showing that there were societal advantages that people with perceived white skin were having under the same economic and social circumstances than people who had who were non-white and that is it and the data and evidence is there so you know do we actually want to be part of the solution or do we want to spend our time debating it Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> um, and just, you know, but final, like, bob on the cherry. Um, so my family are from Sierra Leone. and oh, uh, I'm parking something. I need to tell you something in a minute. All right. Okay. Carry on. Pinching myself to remember. My family are from um, Sierra Leone. And um, people may or may not know that my daughter is mixed heritage. And uh, we go to this playground in this, like a family adventure playground thing in um, Freetown. And um, quite a lot of people, when they see her, they think she's Lebanese. There's a a significant Lebanese um, population um, in Sierra Leone. They've been there for centuries, speak language, cook the food, like they are Sierra Leonean. But because of their proximity to whiteness and their association with wealth, they are often given preferential treatment. So when we go to this place, it's like a a swimming pool and they've got bouncy balls and this and that all over the place. You will see that when my cousins who live there, black children, if they're playing with something, the Lebanese children will go over to them to try and take it. But if my daughter's playing with something, they don't because they're not sure who she like who she's with or whatever. So we're always saying you don't allow people to take your things. They're your things. But because there is this racial hierarchy that is definitely is a real experience so that that just goes to show when I say earlier on I talked about the world being framed by white supremacy Mm -hmm. that is the sort of thing that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. and there's even examples of um, countless of uh, examples of 
friends or relatives traveling in the Caribbean and um, the white or light people who have a closer proximity to whiteness yes. and given preferential treatment yes. by hotel staff and, and tourism staff because the perception is that the closer you are to white, the writer... More superior. Yes. Is yeah. That's what we've learned. That's what's been role modelled globally. Yes. Thanks to the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism and whatever else. Yeah. In. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. A, a colleague of mine was talking about experience of racism in Tanzania that they, he, he experienced as a black man, a dark skinned black man. And he was he just found it so profound that even in this black majority country, the white Americans, the white tourists were seen as more superior, treated far better. And they didn't know that he was a tourist because he had dark black skin. They assumed he was local. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until they found out um, that he was treated differently. But he he experienced it. He just found it quite profound. Mm-hmm. The, the, the pin I put in there is that I recently traced my ancestry. Mm-hmm. Are you one of us? Yes, I've got some Sierra Leone in me. <laughs> I should have known. That's why my spidey senses are all over you. <laughs> I love that. And let me tell you something very interesting. You were talking about transgeneration, transgeneration, transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And we'll have to revisit this when you've had some time to process and I've done some more processing. But my ancestry, they're not sure where they think, because, you know, um, Africans, particularly, we are storytellers. So we don't keep real records. And Mm. unfortunately, in the war in Sierra Leone, a lot of um, governmental records were destroyed in fires. But my mum recalls her great grandmother talking about either her grandmother or great grandmother. They would pronounce it the West Indian, uh, (laughs) West Indies. And it is very likely that, um, so the ethnic group my mum comes from, the Creole tribe, they are made up of black people that were either on their way to be enslaved or black people that were freed from slavery. Mm -hmm. Freetown is called Freetown because it was set up by the Freetown Corporation uh, basically, people think that um, black people being taken back to Africa was an act of kindness. Actually, the Freetown Corporation or whatever it was called was set up because they didn't want black vagabonds hanging around in London <laughs> creating with white people and creating a, a larger black population in London than there was already. So my mum's, um, a, a lot of my mum's ancestors are returned black people that were enslaved mm-hmm. um, and it's likely that they were um, from um, Grenada mm. so um, I had an experience going to uh, Susie Ash- Ashworth's retreat last year in May and we did this heart opening exercise and gosh Cat Moyle bust my heart open in all kinds of ways I don't know (laughs) but something happened whereby I literally felt like I said to her it was like you know at Christmas when you make those decorations that are like link chains it's like literally I felt the link chains being formed and I wasn't I wasn't I can't go into detail because it was very personal and very private, but the experience I had, I just felt like I was in commune with all of those people and all of their experiences. And I've had conversations with a mutual friend of ours, Nicola Ray Wickham, Mm. more inspired about the way I move in the world and almost like with that transgenerational trauma, the impact that trauma has on our DNA, mm-hmm. it's like I got, I got 
twisted. So in my Black History Month project, I talked about um, uh, being on the shoulders of our ancestors to help us stand up even taller. I feel like our trauma has made us reenact their experience of trauma Mm. So we're working really hard. We're grinding. We're constantly proving our worth. We're constantly, because when you were enslaved, you proved your worth by of picking course. cotton or doing whatever of jobs course. And I was like, Nicola. We're doing that to honour them. We're doing that yeah. to honour them, but we missed. They don't want us to do that. Yeah. They want they, us to free free. Yeah. They endured so our parents could survive. And we have all of that information. We have all of those tools embedded within us. And it's now, they're passing the baton to us to thrive now. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel that so, 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 so strongly. Anywho, anywho, anywho. Nova, I could talk to you for interviews. (laughs) I say this to everybody that I speak to on this panel, but I just speak to people that I know I really want to share their message have a conversation with delve deeper with so i'm not just saying it for the sake of it but i really could be on here longer but it's um it's a podcast it's not like you know (laughs) so if people are curious about the things you've talked about Mm -hmm. uh, what do you have what services do you have available currently for people that would like to explore so yeah so I have I I guess my signature program which is an online anti-racism course and that's for people that really want to understand this stuff and self-interrogate and um the people who are coming out the other end are saying it's been completely life-changing so that's for people who really want to lean into allyship to understand this to affect them in their whole world um I also do master classes but let me talk about things that are actually happening uh, I do a lot of things so follow me on novareed.com but I've got a on the 31st of March I am doing the very first conversations with Nova Reed and that's in Manchester in collaboration with ThoughtWorks where I'll be talking about all this stuff and doing a Q&A session with the audience that will be also happening in London at the beginning of May date to be confirmed mm-hmm and I also have a online program, which is five days called Courageous Courage. And that's for anyone that wants to be a better ally, call out racism in a more confident, courageous and effective way. So that's for people that struggle with confidence or anxiety and feel like those are things getting in the way. And that one on the 20, starting the 27th of April is specifically for black and brown women. Mm-hmm. I've got one starting next week for um, white and white passing people. So yeah, a whole array. <laughs> Could you please make sure you send me links so I can add those to the show notes? I will indeed. Um, and I'm about to ask you, I'm about to ask you what uh, everyday joy means to you. But before I do that, somebody tagged me in something on um, Instagram. It's a post that says, joy is an act of resistance. <laughs> joy is my activism, mate, because I know for sure that I didn't grow up thinking that as a 42-year-old, dark-skinned, black African woman, I would be prancing about the place, talking about joy and encouraging <laughs> people to live life more joyfully. I definitely did not have that on the cards. For you, Nova Reed, what, what, what does everyday joy mean to you? I laugh a lot. Me and my husband laugh every single day, um, like, full on belly laugh so I am very I can be very youthful and um, quite young in my spirit which I think is 
I quite like about yeah. me. Yeah. So just joy, being silly, um, yeah, just being able to experience freedom in some way. Mm, yeah, delicious. Nova, thank you very much for a very freeing. Oh no, hold on. What have you forgotten? No, I haven't. I haven't. It's okay. I just paused so I know I'd go into edit. So, Nova, thank you very much for a very freeing, a very liberating um, conversation. Um, And I think I look forward, not I think, I look forward to our transgenerational conversation when Mm, we're ready for it. I look forward to that too. One thing, oh, I... (laughs) One thing I forgot to say is I did a TEDx talk all about hidden racism. So that yes! might be a really nice way in for people to explore this in more detail. I will make sure that I have a link to that. I, I forgot. I had that in the front of my mind <laughs> to talk about Nova being an international TEDx speaker. Can we just take a moment to give a round of applause for Nova Reed being an international TEDx speaker. <laughs> Celebrate yourself. That, that was huge. That was very powerful. Nova, I, I want to see you speaking more and more mm. on bigger stages. Oprah, where you at? Um, Dr. Chatterjee, <laughs> where you at? Who else's podcast do I listen to? Anyway, all of you guys, where are you at? You need Nova Reed on your podcast with speed. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Right, so Nova, for real, for real, I'm going now. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I will uh, see you on uh, Instagram or wherever. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to 360 Conversations. I appreciate you sharing your precious time with my guest and I. I hope you found the episode useful. I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review my podcast. Like an increasing number of our digital experiences, the algorithms rule. Your feedback will assist me reaching a wider audience and I'd really love to have more women being privy to or joining these conversations. The feedback I get following each episode is beautiful and tells me more women could benefit. As always, I'd love to keep the conversation going. You can join me by commenting on the podcast show notes on my website or via social media at Live360. I hope to engage with you soon. Podcast produced by me, Tammy Thomas. Podcast music produced by James Anderson. Take care.